as bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together to fellowship in this unique way, Father. Thank you for giving us the very bread of life to dine on so regularly. Thank you for your divine providence and making a night like this a reality for each of us, including keeping us well enough so that we might travel and uh, be attentive during the lesson uh, without any of the distractions that come with health issues, Father. There are so many that are ill among us, even in our own congregation, that we just want them to know, Father, that our love goes out to them, that we're with them in spirit, and that we ask you to impress upon them these things on our behalf. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, the ones that you've left us behind to evangelize. Thank you for your patience and your mercy and your love in doing so and saving us, but also in saving others along the way. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to make all of this a reality. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance and who gets to define it? Um, on Sunday, we were reminded of a very important principle um, and this evening, you're going to have to pay attention because we've got sort of three elements coming together. We're on repentance proper. What is repentance and who gets to define it? But we've also um, had a short series on mercy as well that's sort of dovetailed into our lessons. Um, and then as of late, starting with Sunday, we had uh, some highlights on the idea of humility. So we've got this sort of three elements that are that the Spirit's going to try to weave together, if I don't get in the way uh, in doing so, He's going to try to weave them together in your soul. Um, so for starters, uh, this has been something that shouldn't be a shock to anyone. It's something that the Spirit's been saying to us for years now from this pulpit. Perspective is everything, and it really is. Uh, for example, learning to live in the now, that's been one of the themes. Uh, and it's by God's grace and mercy that we're able to enjoy such a thing. But God gives grace to who? The humble. And so these are how these elements come together. Only God knows how many days we have on this earth. Psalm 139.16, Job 14.5, Ecclesiastes 3.1-2. Only God knows how many days we have on this earth, so why bother with worrying about Today, I mean, uh, tomorrow, today could be your last day. So why worry about tomorrow? You can't change yesterday, so it's already gone. So why worry about that? Um, and that's something that um, God did on purpose, obviously. He didn't uh, tell us. He doesn't tell us how long we're going to be on earth. But he does say through Scripture, live imminently. I mean, Christ could return tonight. So live as if this is the, your last day on earth. Enjoy today and uh, take your commission, the commission on your life very seriously. Um, one of the passages we looked at up here in the board, Psalm 139, 16, of course, 
Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when yet there was not one of them. So before any of us were even born, God knows how long he's going to have us each live. We don't, but he does. And that's a perspective that gets us thinking correctly, um, thinking properly about what it means to live in the now. Uh, let's read Solomon's perspective on this same topic. Go to Ecclesiastes 3.1. Ecclesiastes 3.1. Let's read Solomon's perspective on learning to live in the now, how each day is precious, how God has everything ordained already. Ecclesiastes 3.1. There is an appointed time for everything. Not some things, everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Again, up here on the board, learning to live in the now. The more we begin to live in the gospel, sharing it, living for others even, the more we realize why each day is precious to God. And I'm convinced that's why he doesn't tell us when we're going to die or be raptured. It's because it would change our perspective in the wrong way. He doesn't want us to know these things because he wants us to live as if today was our last day. The more we begin to live in the gospel, in other words, if today's, suppose today could be our last day, and the greatest thing you can ever do in life is to save or to win a soul, well, what would you spend your last day doing then? Trying to win souls. Well, that's what we should be doing every day. It doesn't mean you're out there like an evangelist. I mean, even Scott has a, a job that he works at. Well, he calls it work. You know what I mean? I mean, not everybody's evangelizing all the time. I mean, Jesus was a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker. So even people that have these uh, tremendous commissions on their lives, specialized commissions, spiritual gifts even, myself included, we do other things. It's not that the Spirit's saying, you know, 24-7 you should have horse blinders on, and if you're not evangelizing someone with the gospel proper, you're not living up to the standard of Christian living. That's not what he's saying. But it's a perspective issue. It's a anticipation. When's my next opportunity? Being excited about each day because maybe you can win a soul. Maybe you can be part of that process, which is uh, phenomenal, really. Uh, a miracle, to see a miracle happen before your own eyes. The more we begin to live in the gospel, sharing it, living for others even, the more we realize why each day is precious to God. And some of these basic primitives that we really should always keep at the forefront of our minds as we live each day in the now. It is Luke 19, 10, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, 1 Timothy 2, 4, 
Go to Luke 19.10. These are just basic primitives that we should live by, that we should always have sort of, let's say, resonating in our minds as we continue to live in the now. What does that mean? You, you know, it sounds, it sounds snazzy, doesn't it? Almost like, oh, live in the now. Ooh, he's on to something. What a guru. No. What does it mean to live in the now? A lot of people in the world would say, well, let's just live like hell then. Let's spend all our money. Let's go get some prostitutes and let's go do this thing together. That's the world. How about us? What does it mean to live in the now as if today was our last day? Because we don't know. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus is our prototype, right? Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which is lost. That's Luke 19.10. How about Matthew 28.18? How about Matthew 28.18? So these are our primitives, if you would. Matthew 28.18. First we had Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Matthew 28:18, obviously very familiar with this passage by now. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's another primitive. We call that the Great Commission. So we know what Jesus came to do, seeking to save. We know what he sent us to do, why we're here, the Great Commission. And then how about 1 Timothy 2.4? 1 Timothy 2.4. How about understanding what God desires? 1 Timothy 2.4. You ask the question, well, what does it mean to live in the now? These are the primitives. 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see a theme? I mean, these are, this is all like, you know, plainly stated doctrine, right? I mean, this is, Jesus came to seek and to save. We have a great commission. And God says he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if it's our last day on earth, what do you think our primitives are? What do you think should uh, become the joy set before us? Again, the point on the board, the more we begin to live in the gospel, sharing it, living for others even, the more we realize why each day is precious to God. This is where we ended up with the following principle from Sunday's lesson up here on the board. More on living or learning to live in the now. God's blessings are bestowed upon those who humbly accept the Great Commission as the primary joy set before them each day they are alive on earth. In fact, the Lord promises to reward those who obey His command to spread the good news. In other words, this is a primitive in our lives. This is why we're left here on earth. And he doesn't just say, I'm going to turn you into a workhorse. I'm going to put your nose to the grindstone. He says, if you do this good work as a soldier, as an ambassador for my son, I will reward you. I'm a perfect master. I will reward you handsomely. Up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 to 8. So then neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In other words, God rewards those who spread the gospel. Now, there's a pervasive attitude in the Bible that cannot be overlooked. In fact, it is the motivating factor, or it was the motivating factor, for our Lord, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to have taken on his cross. It is the very example that we are meant to follow, and it is what we rightly call plainly stated doctrine. Go to Philippians 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. There's something that is unavoidably true, that is so plainly stated that it's uh, unequivocally uh, true, that we cannot sidestep it, we cannot um, remove ourselves from under the weightiness of it, if you'd say that way. It's just plainly stated doctrine. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Again, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And you know, as we continue in that passage, we're not going to it, we see the humility of Christ himself as our example. So we're supposed to um, regard one another as more important than ourselves. So this is what we call plainly stated doctrine because there are no gray areas. No twisting scripture, no ways to dodge the truth about true humility because that's what that is. That's a very picture of what true humility looks like. To regard another person as more important than yourself, it means your arrogance is flushed away. It means you living for self, you holding on to the self-life, you've abandoned that to now begin living for somebody else, to someone else's benefit, you know, the way Jesus did in Philippians 2. And that's what true humility looks like. So you say, well, what does it mean to live one day at a time? Or what does it mean to live in the now? What does it mean to be a humble person? There you have it. The fruit of true humility is in this very passage Allow me to borrow from one of my personal favorite pastors still living up here on the board on the statement, regard one another as more important than yourselves. John MacArthur calls this the basic definition of true humility. And that sounds strange almost, doesn't it? Because most people think of, you know, oh, shucks, you know, I won't be arrogant, I won't be doing this. It's, you know, it's, okay, let me just, you know, kind of shrink away. no. No. Most of the time, that's probably false humility. True humility is this. Regarding someone else is more important than yourselves. That's the fruit of true humility, nonetheless. Go to Romans 12.10. Romans 12.10. You want to understand what it means to live in the now? Do you want to understand what it means to live uh, humbly as unto the Lord? Well, there it is in that statement. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Yeah, those are commands. That's what it means to live humbly. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. One of the easiest, one of the easiest um, things to see in an arrogant person is selfishness. 
it's literally like the first thing. It's right on the, right here, right? An arrogant person is a selfish person. They can't help it because they're living for self. That's what arrogance is. A humble person puts self-life aside and lives for others. Give preference to one another in honor. Go to Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13. I love this because there's a very practical side to humility, obviously. Uh, we do not want uh, humility, be, humility to remain undefined in our souls. So the Spirit's inserting it right now. Galatians 5.13 For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what true humility looks like. Serve one another. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. A selfish person... An arrogant person turns freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but a humble person serves others in love. That's what humility looks like. It's no us shucks, you can us shucks all you want, but that's not humility. Go to Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians 5.21, and the craziest thing about this is that this, this, these are like shocking statements to most Christians. Most Christians think humility is all shucks. Why? Because they don't actually read their Bibles. This is like shocking to, to people. Ephesians 5.21 And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another. What does that mean? Lay down your life for one another. Observe others' needs and it, uh, attend to them. How about 1 Peter 5.5? 5, 5? 1 Peter 5.5 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 What about humility? Well, we're learning. This is what it looks like. 1 Peter 5.5 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Do you see that? All of you clothe... This is a command. Do you want to understand what it means to live in the now? Do you want to understand what true humility looks like? You're reading it. This is the fourth passage already. I mean, we could go on and on. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hmm. So again, what we're seeing here is the true fruit of humility on the board. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And I guess that's a good litmus test for all of us. Because we all sway, right? We all kind of veer off into selfishness. And if you want to know if you're not being humble, if you're being arrogant on a particular day, this would be the litmus test. Am I living for others? Where's my attitude? Am I thinking of others as I'm taking these actions today? Or am I trampling others? Other children of God. Because an arrogant person has no regard for other people. They just trample because they're selfish. That's what arrogance looks like. A humble person says, I can't do that. I won't do that. Because it's dishonoring my Lord. 
I won't do that because it's making another person stumble, etc., etc. That's what humility looks like. Not living for self, living for others. So as MacArthur would say, that's the basic definition of true humility. We just had four verses uh, to support that statement. Uh, again, up here on the board, as I would say over the years, humility is the key to the spiritual life. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. In other words, if you want to live the spiritual life, live the fulfilling spiritual life, increase in faith, all these things, all these blessings, then live for others. Learn what it means to live for others. Use Jesus Christ as an example. Use the apostles as an example. As we learn, there's nothing necessarily special about people that have followed Jesus Christ uh, except that they had humility and God graces them out. So humility is the key to the spiritual life. However, as it came out on Sunday, there exists the idea of false humility in the churches. This idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is completely foreign to today's falsely professing. I remember, this is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. But I'm going to share this. I remember thinking that me going out and evangelizing this way was out of line that I was supposed to just sit back and, and, and open my door and sit on my front porch and let people arrive at my front porch. And if they show up, I'll have a little cup of sweet tea with them and I'll entertain a conversation with them and I'll give them the gospel maybe, you know, if the wind's right and the, the stars are aligned and whatever, God goes, Psh, give them the gospel. I remember thinking that. Shame on me. I was ignorant. I, don't know. I was falsely humble. This idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is completely foreign to today's falsely professing Christian. I mean, how many people, how many Christians are out there actively trying to spread the gospel? Or are they just selfishly abiding in some religious format, some life format? And saying, isn't it wonderful, God's grace? Isn't it wonderful that I'm healthy and I'm happy and I have a, a home and a dog and a cat and two and a half kids and my little Volvo so everybody's protected? Do you follow what I'm getting at? Oh, God loves me so much. I haven't evangelized a soul. It's not on my heart ever. I only want to live for self. Why is that the norm in Christian churches? Honestly, why is that the norm? Why do people go to church to learn? Uh, why do people go to church to receive all the time? Give me, give me, give me, fill me up, make me feel good. I mean, aren't we supposed to be built up for the work of service? Isn't that what Ephesians 4:11 and 12 says? Isn't that my job to build you up for the work of service? To serve others as we just saw? To function in humility? Where is that? On the horizon, on the Christian, it's nowhere. It's dead. The whole thought of it is dead. Not completely, you know what I'm saying. But predominantly, that's where Christianity is gone. People go to church to be uh, edified for themselves. It's like a self-refueling. I'm not saying that doesn't happen uh, even now. But you're actually being equipped to go serve in the field. You're a soldier being trained up to go fight a war. Not just go be fed and become fat, dumb, and happy. 
and then say, praise the Lord. And do no work and just wear the Christian uniform and it's literally all, you know, shiny and new because you've never actually gone into a trench and tried to evangelize. Actually stepped out of your little comfort zone. <laughs> do you know what I'm getting at? That's, but that's today's Christianity. And, it's, and it's, a, it's gross. And I was part of it. So I'm not browbeating anybody. I'm just saying that this is what happens when you grow up. You look back and say, ooh, in 2020, how gross. I'm such a selfish jerk. And I thought I was humble. Humility like grace, mercy, love, etc. has been perverted into something that isn't in the Bible. Humility for most so-called Christians nowadays is a self-serving emotion. Let me say it again. Humility for most so-called Christians nowadays is a self-serving emotion. If the whole reason you're supposedly living for others is so that you can tell the world about it, you are missing the point. If that's your motivation... You're living for others so that you can turn around and tell somebody else, I'm living for others. Every time you do something nice, you got to tell somebody about it. And in that sense, it's self-serving. Oh, I feel good about myself. You're missing the boat. I would argue that that's not true humility at all. It's false humility. A.K.A., also known as arrogance, cloaked in a thin veil of something that looks like humility. Oh, shucks. Such a swell guy, ain't I? Did you see me? Did you see me? I picked up her groceries, the old lady. She's like 90 years old. I picked them up and I helped her. Did you see me? I should wear a T-shirt. God's little helper. <laughs> Maybe I'll make it a onesie, a full-grown adult onesie. Daddy's little helper. Put a little hammer on there. You know what? Here's the truth of the matter. Jesus had no tolerance for that kind of ridiculousness. He had no tolerance for it. Imagine that. The one who is now portrayed as this, he's so loving. He could never, he could never um, chastise anyone. That's the Jesus we have now floating around in Christian churches. He's so benign, he wouldn't dare chastise someone for being out of line. Go to Matthew 6.1. Oh, I beg to differ. I wouldn't want to catch Jesus on a bad day. You want to stand up against Jesus? You might get the get-behind-me-Satan routine. How are you, you going to think about that? <laughs> Seriously. Billy and I were talking about that before class. There's one guy you have to fear in this world, and it's God. <laughs> and fear you must. But people don't fear him anymore because they're actually serving and worshiping a different God, another Jesus from another spirit, peddling a, a different gospel. So nobody fears God anymore. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Any questions? Why? Because that's not true humility. God gives grace to the humble. A reward is grace, right? Well, if you're doing something arrogantly, you don't get the reward because he's opposed to the arrogant. So beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that may be, they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, <clears throat> for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will grace you out, reward you. Imagine that. See how things just kind of work out? For the humble, up here on the board again, false humility in the churches, this idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is completely foreign to today's falsely professing Christian. You have to ask yourself, I wonder, honestly, I'm not picking on anybody, please, it breaks my heart. I've been there, like I said. I wonder how many people pray for another opportunity from God to evangelize someone. I wonder how often that's part of someone's, the average Christian's prayer. Or is it, God, can I please have some more money? You know, you see my financial situation. I have all these needs, which I really want, cloaked as needs. You know what I'm getting at? I wonder how many people are actually praying, Lord, give me another opportunity to win a soul. Because I know that that's why you left me here. I wonder how many people are that humble. Let's look at the other passage now, continuing to gain perspective along the way. Go to Acts 16.16. 16. Falsely professing Christians in the fact that Jesus Christ and someone else had no tolerance, even if you're saying all the right things. Do you understand? Even if you're saying all the right things. Acts 16.16. 16. It happened that as they were going to the Acts 16, 16. It happened that as they were going, as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Is that false? Nope. That's absolutely true. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Why would Paul do that? Because he had no tolerance for false humility. That's garbage. An unsaved person, heck, demons, obviously, can speak the truth. Hmm. Again, the point on the board, this idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is completely foreign to today's falsely professing Christian up here on the board. Neither Jesus nor his wonderful pupil Paul had any tolerance for false humility. No tolerance for it. And so that has to be wrought in us. That should become us. It doesn't mean we go around judging anybody. But if, if we see fruit that is false humility, especially in ourselves, we ought not to accept it, tolerate it. Because neither of these fine gentlemen 
had any tolerance for false humility. To put it differently, up here on the board, on that topic of false humility, humility for most so-called Christians nowadays is a self-serving emotion. Its hallmark is a trumpeting of its so-called good thoughts and actions. It is evil because its motivation is selfish, not selfless. And so we're just rounding out this thought that we started with in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. If you want to know the very definition of humility, there you have it. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility for most so-called Christians is a self-serving emotion. I feel good about myself. I did as the Lord commanded, and I feel good about myself. And that's what this is all about, me feeling good. At that point, the other people involved that might have been involved are just variables, faceless, nameless variables. They could be anybody at that point. They just happen to be, I guess, in the good fortune of you pretending to be humble. And God might, from their perspective, use that to their good, but that's between him and them. But as far as you're concerned, God sees the heart. If your motivation's wrong, it's no good. It's wood, hay, and straw, as far as the Bible's concerned. The idea is to regard one another as more important than yourselves. If your personal emotions are put before someone else's when you're supposedly doing something for them, there might be a problem. That's what the Spirit's saying. Now, let's see if we can add some connective tissue between this issue of true humility and our primary course of study, which is repentance, and let's do so by keeping our lessons on mercy in full view also. Remember, we have three moving parts today. We have humility, repentance, and mercy, all three of which we've been sort of hovering around over our lessons as of late. Uh, first, we noted on Sunday, and uh, go to Romans uh, 9.18, Go to Romans 9.18. As we continue to weave these three things together, and I hope you're seeing how seamless they fit together. Romans 9.18. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Up here on the board, he has mercy on whom he desires. This completely annihilates any attempt by man to redefine or control God's mercy and therefore alter the gospel of his Son. God decides upon whom he bestows mercy. Man does not decide, for he is at the mercy of the Lord, the judge. So there's no, as we just saw, there's Jesus, our great shepherd, where all authority comes from, as far as teaching the truth, has no tolerance for bad definitions because he knows that Satan uses them to pervert the gospel. And that's the whole reason we're here, to uphold the gospel, the good news about him, so that we might win souls. That's the Great Commission. And Jesus says, no tolerance. He says, no, do not pervert my mercy. There are constraints on this thing called mercy. And if you read your Bible, it's not hard to see them. See, man wants them unconstrained. He wants to be able to say, oh, I know it says God has mercy on whom he desires, but I think if God were here right now, he'd have mercy on me because that's what I want. And that's what's good for my flesh. And God's like, no. I give grace, mercy is grace in action, to the humble. You are an arrogant person. And so is your little friend 
and your little groupies and everybody else that you run with. No tolerance. Verse 19, you, say, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And that goes back to that point I made earlier about fearing God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he just let them live on in your presence to reveal his wrath, to show you that he means business, that you should fear him? Because he has no problem sending some people to lake of fire. He has no problem handing down a sentence of eternal punishment to arrogant people. No problem. He doesn't want it necessarily, but he has no problem doing it because they have a free will. And his justice says, this is the right thing to do. And who are you to say? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. In other words, in light of that, how much has he done for us, for believers? He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. It's a miracle that he saves any of us. Who are we to judge? Who are we to put God on the, uh, the witness stand, so to speak? Or who, are we, who are we to prosecute like Satan, God? The audacity is, is, is beyond stupendous. It's unbelievable. So we got a few things going on right now in a lesson. I need you to concentrate. This came up on Sunday on this topic of grace and mercy and keeping the definition straight. The grace and mercy found in the Bible are predominantly relating to salvation and deliverance principles. They are derived completely from Holy Scripture, not man's sensibilities towards himself or others. That's just a, I don't know, a technical way of saying you don't get to invent other aspects of God's mercy and grace. If you want to understand things like humility, grace, mercy, love, then read your Bible and you will see that these things actually have constraints. And the one who put up the constraints is the sovereign God of the universe. And you don't, he's immutable. You don't get to you know, argue with him and negotiate like a lawyer because that's what Satan does. He tries to negotiate like a lawyer. And he, obviously his tactics are horrible because he loses and he's going to like a fire. But the other thing is that grace and mercy, if you really want to understand grace and mercy, they're really concentrated on the gospel, salvation, and deliverance principles. They're always around those principles. They are not around um, the things that man has morphed them into. Things like, well... God loves, and I'm an awful train wreck, but he loves me. So God loves me so much, and I'm so weak, that he's just going to enable me. He's going to let me stay in this horrible vector. Indefinitely. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's not interested in that version of mercy 
because that's not merciful. When a loving father sees a person heading towards doom, how is it mercy to enable them? How is that merciful to enable someone, to quicken them? (laughs) It's not. It's merciful to tell them the cold, hard truth and stop them in their track and say, I love you. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to take time out of my schedule. And he might work through you as, a, as an evangelist, as, a, as a, a person who's speaking truth. I love you. This is tough for me too, you know. This is uncomfortable. I'm not really a confrontational type, but I love you. And this is what true mercy looks like. You're out of line. You're heading in the wrong direction. What's more merciful, that or enabling someone to doom? If that's our piddly perspective, what does God's mercy look like? And how pronounced is it? And what does he really care about? What, is, what are those three primitives, remember? Jesus came to seek and to save. Our job is the Great Commission. God desires all that saved and comes to knowledge of him. Those are primitives. He says it's merciful to stop somebody in their tracks and let them know about the presence of those primitives that the sovereign God of the universe says, these are the boundaries of my grace and mercy. These are the boundaries of salvation. It's a farce that's being peddled by God knows how many so-called Christian churches to teach anything different. To accommodate man outside of those boundaries. God's grace and mercy function within certain constraints. And I'm convinced of this. This concept is something that is wildly not understood. In Christianity, I can understand if you're a Hindu or a Muslim or something like that. But Christianity doesn't understand that there are constraints to God's mercy. It's unbelievable up here on the board. For example, mercy isn't like a can of paint that man gets to brush all over everything to cover up his fleshly ugliness and then call it by grace. Mercy, which is grace in action, is neither a crutch nor an enabler. Just read Romans 5 5 and 6. You'll get that. Mercy is neither a crutch nor an enabler. Up here on the board, a person who supposes mercy is an enabler is an abuser of grace. It is the absolute wrong perspective to presume such things. And you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about the premeditator. The one who premeditates things. That's not a humble person. That's an arrogant person. That's a person looking to be enabled. Who looks at mercy as a get-out-of-jail-free card, if that makes sense. You see, once... But here's the thing. I was thinking about this. Once a person strays from Holy Scripture, and just as a side note, that's why we got all those lessons on the inerrancy of the Holy Bible because you should really focus and depend on the Bible more than anything or anyone. Once a person strays, it is increasingly easier to stray all the more. It's like if you've ever had magnets, magnetic forces, the further you are removed from their forces of attraction, the weaker their ability to attract you is. That's what it's like. And Satan just sort of ratchets you out and out and out and out and out. 
and in the attractive forces, it's just easier and easier to go astray, in other words. What happens with things like grace and mercy and even love, if you want to get down to it, is that they begin to stray from their original divinely ordained definitions. In particular, as they relate to the very reason we are here on earth as believers, the gospel. What have I been teaching you? All of this is to derail the gospel. Up here on the board. God's grace and mercy are foundational to His plan to save His creatures. They are not meant to be punchlines to man's plan to save himself. Regardless if he chooses to call himself a Christian or not, I don't care about these titles. God doesn't care about these titles. You shouldn't care about these titles. Who cares if someone calls you a Christian or not? Who cares? I actually had someone tell me, this has been a few years though, once when I was standing up against what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. He told me, shame on me. Shame that I call myself a man of God. In a public forum. This was like on Facebook or something. And I had probably like over a thousand friends or something. Shame on you for calling yourself a man of God. So you're calling yourself a Christian and I'm not? I'm defending the truth and what are you defending? Homosexuality? If it was okay with God, I'd defend it, but it's not. What do you want me to do? I'm not the man of God. Okay, whatever. You don't have to call me a Christian. I don't really care. Call me whatever you want to call me. But I know the truth. And that's what matters. I hear crazy things, and I'm sure you can attest, like God is so gracious and so merciful that he saves everyone, even those who believe in a different God than the one who became a man and died on his cross. I hear that from Christians. That's unbelievable. I hear that from Christians. Do you want to be a Christian then? Because I don't. If that's what is the generally accepted definition for Christianity, I don't want to be a Christian then. If that's the definition, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be anywhere near those people. Because that's not, that's not the gospel of my Lord. That's insanity. That is satanic to the core. And we ought not accept such foul definitions in favor of biblical truth and plainly stated doctrine in His divinely inspired Word. Plainly stated. To pervert core gospel definitions is to do the work of the devil. That's a fact. To pervert core gospel definitions... Grace, mercy, love, sanctification, justification, faith, these things is to do the work of the devil. You may say, well, then how do I know? Here's your manual. To pervert core gospel definitions is to do the work of the devil. Is anybody in here willing to say they've never done the work of the devil? I'm not. But in humility, at least we accept that as truth. And we keep seeking first the kingdom of heaven, right? John 10, 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the 
fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way. He is a thief and a robber. You can't shoehorn people into heaven, my friends. You can't widen the gate artificially. You can't jump over the side. God says, these are my constraints. I'm the creator. Who are you to question me, old man? I'm the potter. You're the clay. I can do whatever I want. Here's the gate. And oh, by the way, it's narrow. Narrow means constrained, right? Narrow means constrained. If it was wide open, it wouldn't be constrained at all. But it's not. It is constrained, right? So things like grace, mercy, faith, love, sanctification, justification, etc., etc., etc. All these fancy with propitiation, expiation, right? All these big words that theologians like to toss around to confuse you. (laughs) What it really means is, hey, listen, God says I'm merciful enough to give you a gate to go through. Who cares about how wide or narrow it is? I gave you a gate to go through. I didn't even have to do that. I became a man and died for you. As the Bible says, strive to enter through the narrow gate then. (laughs) People should be crawling over each other. (laughs) Right? Think about that. You know, if if a shepherd's on the inside of the sheepfold and it's dinner time and he rings the dinner bell, what do you think the sheep are doing? Climbing over each other if the gate's only this wide. Get some food! And what does the Bible say? Go in and out and find pasture. Why are we focusing on how wide the gate is? Because that's exactly satanic. That's exactly what Satan said. God said you can eat from any tree this wide. This now, this one little tree. Just don't eat from that one. What did Satan focus them on? Well, why don't you want to eat that one? It's the same thing. Don't you see? It's all over. It's the same trick from the garden. That's why I love Genesis so much. It's the same trick, just respun. Now Jesus says the narrow gate, what does Satan attack? Why is it so narrow? He doesn't want you to know something. You can still get in over the side. Just be good enough. Or just believe this little watered-down gospel over here. The one that says you don't even have to think about repentance. You don't have to do anything like that. Don't even consider the self-life. Maybe we'll think about that after. Maybe we won't. Just climb up over the side. While those dumb, self-sacrificing-looking dummy little sheep crawl over each other to strive to get through the narrow gate agonize over it wrestle over it (laughs) suckers we're coming over the side yeah we'll see about that one last point of review before we get back to our mainstream what is repentance and who gets to define it not that we've departed completely from it we're just sort of padding it bringing other things in in play. To piggyback off our previous points this evening regarding true humility, remember that God gives grace and therefore mercy to the humble. And the Bible tells us unequivocally, as plainly stated doctrine, up here on the board, I didn't say this, John 6, 44. Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one gets to come unless God draws him. And who are you to question me, old man? I might use these arrogant people. I might let these arrogant people over here live to show you what it looks like, what wrath is going to look like, who I'm wrathful towards. That's between me and myself. 
But this is what Jesus said. No one can come to him. No one gets a father except through him. There's no other way of salvation except through Christ, regardless of what some Christians are saying nowadays. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when we read the following passage, let us remember who exactly is being drawn to God's wisdom through the word as it is manifest before them. Okay, go to Luke 15.1. I'm almost out of time. I can't believe it. Luke 15. I'm only halfway through my notes. So well. Luke 15.1. Spirit obviously has a lot to say on this topic. Luke 15, verse 1. Point on the board, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And look at who God draws, was drawing to him. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Who was interested? They were. The sinners. The humble, in other words. So who does God draw? These people. The so-called dregs. (laughs) And... It's just a matter of humility. It's not that a rich person can't come to Christ. It's not that a person who's, I don't know, more righteous than a prostitute, if there is such a thing, which is a silly thing to say, but you know what I'm getting at, can't come to Christ. That's not true either. It's just a basic primitive in salvation that God draws humble people to himself. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, now this is the arrogant side, of course, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Wouldn't that be like the most refreshing news of all? No, seriously, being around those jackasses all the time, who are weighing people down with things that they didn't even bother with, just weighing people down, wouldn't that be like the most refreshing news of all? Hey, wait a minute. This guy is willing to receive sinners and eat with them? That would be like, oh, Not these people. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So within the first parable in this tremendous chapter in the holy book, we have been given the overarching theme that continues through the other two even. One sinner who repents. Joy in heaven depends upon repentance. I, shouldn't, I should qualify that. Not only on repentance, but in context here, this is what's being said. Joy in heaven depends upon repentance. God is... Merciful to the, to the humble, granting them repentance and faith that saves. To the contrary, without repentance, none of this is granted. This is how God's mercy is articulated, bounded, and constrained. He says, I give grace to the humble. Those are my boundaries. If you're willing to come through the narrow gate, you're welcome. But if you want to remain on the outside and try to crawl up some other way, you're not welcome. And one of my mandates is that you repent. And this is, this is something that goes on in your soul. That, and I see your heart. I see you. I don't see your lips flapping. I see you. Do you want in my way? Or do you want to try to climb in through the other side? Because if you're not willing to repent, then you don't get in. 
Those are my constraints. And who are you to question me? You can't have both. Verse 8, Well, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, same theme. Same theme. And then we see this exact same theme in a much broader parable now. Go to verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Up here on the board, this is repentance and mercy in full view. This is what true repentance looks like, a contrite heart before a good father who is willing to show his humble son mercy unto salvation. Verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. And then you know how the older son uh, goes on and is, is uh, sort of begrudging against the younger son, etc., etc. The point is, on the board, once again, this parable is about repentance that leads to salvation. This is true repentance. This is what true repentance looks like, a contrite heart before a good father who is willing to show his humble son mercy unto salvation. And let's see. Let me just finish this way. Jesus was driving home the exact same point as he was in the first two parables the lost sheep, and the lost coin. And one of the things, I guess I'll give you in closing, one of the things I love about the Bible, and I hope you do too, in particular, the teaching of Jesus, is the variety of approaches that are given into a single topic. It's not that there's a, necessarily a bunch of topics. It's really the gospel. I mean, Jesus came to seek and to save. He just wants people to understand there's a conversion process, there's repentance in view, uh, there's saving faith in view, there's, there's these things, of course. Um, there's the sinfulness of man, there's deliverance, etc., etc. But there's not that many topics, it's not that hard of a thing to understand. But yet, throughout his ministry, he always took different approaches into the same topic. And, you know, some of us might get... One parable might resonate really well with us, and for someone else, it's another one. But it's the same topic. 
It's just, you know, some people are greedy misers, so the coin one really makes sense. Some people are shepherds, so the sheep one makes sense. I'm just saying. Some of you lived like hell, like the prodigal son, and then were saved. I don't know. Whatever one resonates. You know how I said some of you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just sharing. I just love the way Jesus taught. It's so beautiful. So he, he came with a variety of approaches on a single topic, yet the principles, as the Spirit's been pointing out, aren't complex at all. In fact, they are very simple. So simple, in fact, that even a so-called uneducated, and I use that word on purpose because remember the 12 apostles, remember they were considered uneducated. The concepts are so simple that even the so-called uneducated person can understand them. Isn't that beautiful? Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege to study your word here this evening and fellowship together, to break bread together. What a wonderful privilege it is. May we never become familiar with it, but rather embrace it for what it truly is, grace given to the humble. Father, we ask for traveling mercies as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that need it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.